And welcome back to your favorite podcast on the left, Timber Sycamore, with your hosts, Hayden DePriest. And Michael Petroselli. So we are today doing episode six, I believe. This is episode six, right? This will be episodes five and six today. Oh, we're doing episode five first. Okay. Yeah, five we record come before six. We record these ahead of time. I couldn't remember where we ended off. So I guess it was I guess we, I was wondering, you cutting the intro from the first one and putting it in front of the second one too. So if it sounds identical, that's because it is. I don't think we need an intro. I like to start in media res. And because we are actually in media res in the story right now. So last we left off, we were going to revisit phase four of the Soviet-Afghan war, specifically the last phase of withdrawal. Yes. Um, So the actual will for war in the Soviet Union barely ever existed, but by this point is demolished. Uh, this has been going on for a while for everyone for a war that everyone was promised was going to be once again, a couple months. We are by the eight year point at this point. I believe we start phase four in 1977. Yeah. This like eight, nine year mark Mm -hmm. is coming up fast. And so I had touched about everything that I wanted to say about phase four. Where did you want to pick up with that? So um, there's a couple things here that begin to matter. Uh, so the removal of Carmel leads to the replacement of him by Najibullah, who is still Soviet-backed, right? The Najibullah government, receiving. it lasts for a couple of years, up until... Yes. 92. 92. There's three phases uh, in the Civil War. We'll see that when we get there. Yeah, he does not receive a significant amount of like military aid. The U.S. and the Soviets agree to cease that uh, in the 90s, but he is backed by the Soviet government. Uh, there's a plan that make that they do that changes things, which is called the Policy of National Reconciliation. Uh, it would be hard to imagine someone unintentionally fucking up a plan more than Najibullah fucks up the plan for national reconciliation. We'll get to that during, uh, well, so I guess it begins now. So Najibullah uh, refuses to either make Mujahideen happy. He's like the worst example of a compromised candidate because nobody gets what they want at all. Like even in small ways, Najibullah is completely crippled in his ability to administer the country. He seems to have only been a middling administrator before that really but like you know uh, when everyone hates you it makes it hard to do anything at all um so he alienates the rebels further which seems almost impossible and he alienates all of the communists who used to support the government so now we are developing this uh, kind of, so there was a terse alliance between Masood and Najibullah very briefly, uh, with Masood kind of taking the reins on being like, Hey guys, maybe we should end the war at least for our people's sake. If not for like our sake, we're going to have to give up some of what we want. But this war is incredibly unpopular amongst the Afghan populace, so uh, maybe we want to keep them on our side for at least a little bit, you know? Yeah. Uh, Najibullah, of course, is supposed to bring the communists to Masood. What instead happens? Uh, he fails completely. He does not even kind of approach. He doesn't try. He doesn't, does he not try to court the Soviets then? The communists, rather? That's almost what it seems like. Uh, is so it, is he, it, are we dealing with the communists or the Soviets here? Like the, the communists. DR, the, communists. the Soviets so the are D- backing them almost de facto because they are pushing the policy of national reconciliation. Yeah. So Andrew the Soviets Bullitt are trying to believe in national reconciliation as part of okay. the problem. Well, Soviets, the Soviets by this point are trying to like uh, remove their own very physical uh, principal presence in the country and to try and do everything through the DRA as a proxy, you know, because yes. they recognize that the war is unpopular in Afghanistan and to some degree by the international community. 
is viewed as a act of imperial aggression. So they want to reduce this. They want to help support local leaders. So that's why I was confused about that, just to be clear. So they're approaching the Afghani communists. Uh, yes. Okay. And so Najibullah um, doesn't believe in national reconciliation. Why is that? Because he believes that uh, we should... I, honestly, I don't know what his plan would be. Uh, I don't know what he thinks makes him unique amongst Afghani leaders. Mm-hmm. But he seems to believe that if he just had a little bit of time without national reconciliation as the plan, that he could be victorious. Well, that makes sense then. If you think you can win. Yes, right. Don't, sign the, don't sign the plea deal. But I have no idea why he believes that. It is... Well, the communists seem to disappear as a faction almost entirely uh, by the time the Afghan civil war really kicks off. Most of the fighting during the civil war <clears throat> seems to take place pretty much between different uh, different factional Islamic militant groups. Yeah, absolutely. Like, varying degrees of intensity. And I'm not completely sure why that is. Um, other than like... This is at least like the communist movement at this point in Afghanistan is largely broken, uh, partially through their own mistakes, partially through external like events that are happening. Um, I'm not quite sure. So. Like we, so the mass bombardment obviously affects the communists the worst, right? When we get to that, mm-hmm. just because they are in the city primarily. Um, well, we did talk a little bit about the, um, so when we, when we did some initial dives into the Kalki Parchami division, it seemed to be the contention of some people that the Kalkis largely won. There was this idea. It was on the Wikipedia page, which thankfully we are finally we finally have enough time for research that we don't have to resort to using that as like a base one. But like, I remember reading the Wikipedia page saying that the Kalkis were a, would often channel their own tribal resentments into their politics. And most of them ended up allying with the Mujahideen. It doesn't actually specify, I don't think which group they joined because by this point, the Mujahideen are entirely heterogeneous. You could draw all sorts of different factional lines there. Right. Even sometimes within them, uh, Fucking, at one point, Masood, who is still technically a part of Jamiat, is always listed as being the leader of Shara'i Nasir, uh, the Eastern Shura. No idea why. Uh, literally, it's a seemingly non-existent distinction. Except that it seems like... Uh, there was like some effort by Jamiat to be like, well, we're not going to turn our political organization entirely into a military. Which, sure, like that's a worthwhile thing to do. Mm-hmm. But when the military is going to seize the power for you, you probably want to keep the military around. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Especially, yeah. especially when everyone else is. Like if the other six people are saying, this is our political military organization. And you're saying, that's our political organization. They say, okay, so we can shoot all of them then? <laughs> so they're unarmed? Cool. <laughs> um, which weirdly never happens, which leads me to believe that this distinction is even more meaningless than is presented, other than as like an optical illusion to make them look better than they are, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as we were going to learn today, uh, Masood's previous restraint uh, can fall away pretty quickly. Uh, and the same is true for pretty much everyone else, uh, including, incredibly, Goldberg and Hekmatyar, who manages to find new and creative ways to commit war crimes. Okay. So is um, this... So we are, have we reached the tail end of our discussion on phase four? So just about, um, so the 
ISI keeps certain sections of the Mujahideen going through the Durand line, which as we talked about in episode one is the line between Pakistan and Afghanistan that is developed and separates Pashtunistan, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, so primarily this funding goes to Golbuddin Hekmatyar, it goes to um, Ipihad because they're closely allied with the Saudis at this point. Um, and it goes to Harakat Islami. Uh, on the d- last day of the Soviet occupation, there is a parade. Uh, during this p- parade, uh, Gromov is the last man out of Afghanistan. He crosses the bridge uh, north to out of Afghanistan. Uh, and there is a horde of Russian press waiting for him. Uh, what gets reported in the news is that Gromov leaves amid a, quote, flurry of obscenity. Uh, what Gromov says is, I hate our cowardly fucking leaders who send people to war and demand that others clean messes for them. He recounted this in his personal memoir. There is certainly a sense amongst the Soviet army that they are not leaving victors, right? They're not leaving losers in like the most technical sense of that term. Didn't fucking win. And Romov is at least partially not only mad because not only did they get sent to clean up this mess that they did not create, but that the Soviet Union leadership, Central Committee, largely created for themselves by just refusing to actually back a leader solidly by keeping these, by allowing these factional lines to develop as much as they did. The reality is if you crush the Kalki Parshami division in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm. We are looking at a very different situation in Afghanistan when they take power. When the communists take power. Yeah, they let this factionalism ferment and then don't step in until it's already turning into atrocities and people being thrown in prison. Which, again, maybe they didn't realize it would get that bad. But within the Soviet Union, you crush, they crush factionalism as quickly as they can. Especially, and like, I mean... Say what you will about the purges. There were excesses, of course. The fact is, you cannot govern a country when there are harsh and irreconcilable factional differences, especially of the nature that the Kalki and Parshami one seems to be, which is not actually based in like an ideological or political split, but often seemingly it forms and then they just keep it going to keep it going at times. It's not that anyone is particularly invested in the politics of it. Or they are only invested in the politics of it, rather. Mm-hmm. Um, so Najibullah Bula makes his final mistake. As uh, the leader of... Uh, Afghanistan. And what is this final mistake? Uh, the dismissal of a man named Mumin. He's a high-ranking general within the Afghan army. He is well-respected. Uh, and he is close friends with Dostum. Who uh, is the head of intelligence at the time. Uh the removal of Mumin functionally against him. <laughs> now, much like the rest of Afghanistan, the Afghan army is not a unified political bloc, right? They have all of these old divisions. There are tribal divisions. There are ethnic divisions. There are uh, political divisions. And there are religious divisions. Uh, so the army does, once Najibullah steps down, because he can no longer stand up against the combined force of Junbish, which is his own, most of his own army. What is the, what is the year that we are at by this point? 92. 
Okay. Wait, no. Yeah, 92. Sorry. Okay. So we are actually, we've talked a little bit about, um, I think, that the state of the Afghan the state of the Afghan government by this point is in pretty dire straits. So even the new Najibullah government was to some degree decently dependent on Soviet foreign cooperation in order to survive, which became a you know pretty stark issue after 1991. Uh, there was a, you know, the economic state of the country, I just wanted to mention, like by this point had been really it's self-ravaged. So the problems that we're dealing with are not just like factional and political, but also a little bit more inherent, a little bit more circumstantial as well. Like these kinds of like very harrowing circumstances. The economic crisis had been brought on a little bit by the failure of Afghanistan to realize its potential for natural gas exports. Some sources have claimed that the natural gas, like the natural gas reserves by this point had been almost completely depleted in Afghanistan. But in any case, we are about to exit to, if we are in 92, this is, we are in the first phase of the Civil War then. First phase of the Civil War is from 89 to 92. Yes. Um, so I actually uh, made a mistake because I wrote the Gromov note down later because I couldn't find his memoir for a long time. <laughs> um, turns out it is not easy to find Soviet generals' memoirs in English. Weird. You can I don't find know. them in find them in Russian. Ah, yes, my first language. It's a proto. It's a PIE language. I'm sure you could. I'm sure it'll take no time at all. I mean, yeah, I can probably figure my way through it. Yeah, go to you, Podolsky. Anyway, um, but uh, so there's a lie that the U.S. is pressing from '89 to '92. It's the is same that? lie that they pressed to the Soviet government to convince them that they were able to withdraw. Which is, the U.S. will guarantee that there is no aid going to the Mujahideen, military aid. You know, financial backing is different. Nobody was going to refuse to give that to their side, right? Mm-hmm. But no military aid. Uh... They tell the Soviet government that the war has been too costly, that it's taken too long. Uh, They guarantee that they will stop Pakistan and Saudi Arabia from helping as well. Soviet Union has very few choices at this point. Perestroika is ravaging the country. Uh, The war is wildly unpopular at home. The soldiers fucking hate it, clearly. They agree and they go out. Um, there's a man named Schultz who sits down with Najibullah and he's a CIA, he's the CIA chief in Kabul and he guarantees him very firmly, I'm not going to give weapons to the Mujahideen. So, uh, yeah, so how'd that turn out? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I didn't even get Uh, to ask the question. You already got there. (laughs) Najibullah, uh, believes him completely. The Soviets seem to not believe the U.S., understandably. Uh, Najibullah tells his soldiers to prepare for a war with uh, unreinforced troops in a speech. (laughs) Uh, Meanwhile, the U.S. is now dropping off artillery supplies. And uh, at this point, Israel is stealing weapons that are intended for Palestine from the Soviet Union. And the U.S. government is buying these off Israel and giving them to the Bush. So not only are they not not giving them weapons, they're actually ramping up the weapons amounts that they are giving them. And they're giving they're giving weapons even harder. Yeah, and in many cases, increasing the quality because instead of like the U.S. giving you their fucking like twice used Viet like ex-Vietnam fucking stinger missile. Uh, now all of a sudden they're giving you like fresh Soviet artillery, which we will find out gets well, put to a lot of use later. Well, maybe that was their cover story. They were just like, this can't possibly be American aid. It's all, it's all really good. <laughs> it's all top of the line. They're like, you well, know, you, this that's is not the way we operate. 
We do. That's not the way we typically uh, operate. <laughs> Usually, we lend lease you our fucking twice worn goods, and then make you pay them back, pay us back for them at Look a premium. This. Yeah, war's a racket, baby. Right, but you also paying more, you pay more money for these shitty things. <laughs> but now it seems like so the United States is um, again. You get the impression that, to some degree, the CIA is kind of... The United States is sort of sitting on its toes a little bit. Sitting on its hands, rather. Uh, as much as the Soviets are with, like, you know, not really wanting to get super involved in Afghanistan, if only because they think to themselves, this is going to be a muck and a mire that I really don't want to deal with. But once the Soviets withdraw and Najibullah is on, effectively, his last legs, this seems to reinvigorate the American response then. As if to say... All right, boys, um, the party's finally started. No Soviet's going to mess this up. It's just us versus a bunch of these groups. We can, uh, we, can, we can game this. Everyone else so far has failed, but we could do it. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, they really imagine that they are going to be the one exception that proves the rule. That's the funniest thing about Afghanistan, uh, having, you know, going all the way up until 2021, is that Afghanistan for nearly a century, a century and a half, rather, uh, was part of part of this geopolitical scuzzle between the United Kingdom and Russia. And it was very famously referred to as the Great Game. And when you look at the, when you look at the history of the Great Game from the mid-19th century all the way up until last year, as a battle between Russia and the United Kingdom, the person who ultimately lost the Great Game somehow managed to be the United States. Yeah. We managed to, you know, we only, we have so many losses. We only have so many losses in terms of, not in battles or in wars, but like in these kind of like great geopolitical moves that we managed to shoehorn in one that wasn't even supposed to be between us in the first place. As if somebody asked, who wants to, who wants to lose this war? America shoots its hand straight up and says, ooh, ooh, me. Me, me, me. It's a really incredible stance to hold. Yeah. Like, it would be like if a grandmaster at chess was playing a master at chess. And then I walked up and was like, can I take over for you? You, just brought, your own, you brought your own set of, like, gray-colored pieces and started playing them as well. <laughs> right, and I, some, took over, I took and over some, for white and played gray. <laughs> and then somehow still lost. <laughs> but only with the gray. <laughs> but only with the gray. Anyways. So... We should probably, uh, I want to circle back a little bit because we kind of rushed through phase one. Phase yeah, one of I, the war. I accidentally just read through my notes too fast. Well, let's, let's, let's set the stage for the entirety of the Civil War real quick so that everybody knows exactly where we're going to be at different times. So the Civil War in Afghanistan lasts from 89 to 2001. And there are three distinct phases of the war. There is 89 to 92, there is 92 to 96, and there is 96 to 2001. And in my notes, I have each one of these phases marked off by a certain event. So the first phase is from 89 to 92. It is concluded by the event, which is, which just reads, holy shit, Hekmitar. 96 ends with the event, holy shit, Taliban. 2001 ends with the event, holy shit, 9-11. Which I think is a decent way to think about this kind of thing. Because again, for those first two, those are uh, real turning points in the Civil War, because these are when different factions start to gain control of the city of Kabul, or at least have like a significant influence in it to the degree that these events start to shift the way they cause major alliance shifts both times that they happen. As different, these kind of different warring groups, there's probably, like the Syrian civil war, it's incredibly convoluted. There are at certain points as many as five or six different competing factions that we can't like kind of like circle. Well, I mean, there are more, but like, I want to say five or six different sides to the war that we can't just circle together and say, okay, these are basically one side because they're fighting together, right? Yeah, right. Uh, and sometimes those sides will shift meaninglessly, like randomly. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, like as many as five or six during the height. Uh, but like these two events, the in 92 and in 96, and we're going to go through them chronologically so we have them more, but just to say that these two events are both monumental in causing these kinds of shifts to happen. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, fundamentally change the way that Afghanistan can operate as a country. 
So who are the players in this? We have the, we, it's the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, is it called? Um, it is the, there's an, ooh, the Islamic Emirate? No, no that's the, the Taliban. Uh, the Peshawar Accords create the Islamic State of Afghanistan. The Islamic State of Afghanistan, which is different from the Emirate. The Emirate is the name given by the Taliban. Yes. Okay. So the we have a couple different players here. We want to get out of the gate as way. We get out of the get out of the gate immediately. So we have Jamiat e Islami, which is of course the Masood faction we've talked about. We were talking about the also what I wanted to say was the IRA, the Islamic or the ISA, the Islamic State of Afghanistan. This is the Najibullah slash Rabbani government, right? Yes. Okay. We also have, as we've talked which about is before, previously called the Northern Alliance. Like it's worth mentioning. No, not previously. We're talking about the very beginning of the war. Oh yeah, because the Peshawar Accords defined the Northern Alliance, so we're four years out yet. Yeah, you are really Russian. You really want to get done with this? No, I. So my issue is that I uh, had my like eighty-eight to ninety-two notes in with my fourth phase notes, so it looks confusing. Okay, so the Northern Alliance will get there, but like. Because that, that is one of the major factional shifts that happens. But we have Jamiat Islami. We have the Islamic State of Afghanistan, the Najibullah government. We also have, very famously, Hezbi Islami Gobuddin, which is, of course, the faction led by our infamous Gobuddin Hekmitar. Later on in 94, we will see the rise of the Taliban, which we will explain as we get there. And we have a couple, there are a couple more smaller groups that are still that still become major players. Uh, what is the one led by Dostum? Uh, that does not exist yet. Well, we'll we're going to set it up for later. Okay, so uh, Junbish? Junbishi Mili. Uh, should we explain a little bit about what they are now? No, we just want to set the... Okay. I mean, just briefly. We want to set yeah. the stage, because we're going to throw out a lot of names at you really quickly, and we just want to like set the stage so that we know what's happening when. Um, so... Junbish is led by a man named Dostum. Dostum is a former Khalki who uh, was widely considered to be a true Soviet and communist loyalist. Uh, he is for a long time uh, the right-hand man of pretty much every president militarily. He's the head of your intelligence. You need him on your team. Uh, they're also largely ex-military or part of the 53rd Division, uh, which are defected Mujahideen soldiers to the Soviet side. Okay. And the last, so this is a, so Dostum was a former uh, communist marshal then, right? Uh, yes, he is the... And so, and so he is leading, right, he's the head of intelligence. So we're leading, he is now leading this group, which is... Uh, Junbishi Mili, which is uh, conformed of a constituted by a lot of former communist uh, sympathizers in Afghanistan. Yes. It is also a little bit, it is like uh, Jamiat Islami, a little bit more, just slightly more foreign and northern bound. It's not Pashtun per se, like Hezbi Islami Gulbuddin. Jamiat Islami is like a little bit more Tajik oriented, right? Let's talk about uh, them. Tajik, Uzbek, Turkmen, and then... Uh, and then Junbishimili is very similar, Uzbek and Turkmen. Yes. Yes. It's okay. because they all live in that northern region kind of together. And within Kabul, they all live in West Kabul, pretty much. Okay. And so the last... Do you have much to say about Hezbi Iwadat? Which one? Hezbi Iwadat. The... Uh, Hezbi Iwadat is a uh, combined organization... Uh, they're the merger of what was the Tehran 8. Uh, all of the... Go ahead. No, so the Tehran 8 were another group of Mujahideen uh, as opposed to the Peshawar 7. Yes. Almost like the Shia version. Yes. Uh, with backing from Iran, but when... In... So they always say that it was limited backing from Iran. Iran gives them as much as they can. It's just a fact that at this point, the country is not as wealthy as the combined force of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, England, France, India, the U.S. Like, they cannot make up for that much money. 
And we will... <laughs> okay, so those are the five factions we have. Hezbiwadat, um, which is... Lim like It has limited, quote-unquote, Iranian backing, composed of the Tehran 8 to some degree. Uh, it is the Tehran 8 and then almost... So the way it goes is the Tehran 8 form, they become one group, which is Hezbiwadat. Uh, and then all of the, some members of each faction want to maintain their independence. Mm -hmm. um, so the only two that are really left out of this, like after they split and like a large part of the Tehran 8 just falls apart, uh, is a group called Harakat Islami. Uh, Harakat is primarily Hazara Shia, um, but also has like a vaguely non denominational, like, northern nationalist bent to them mm -hmm. um whereas his is much more firmly like a shia organization right so we have has we have junbishi mili that we've talked about we have had jamiat islami we have talked about hezbi gobudin hezbi islami gobudin which we've talked about we have the at this point the isa the rabani slash najibullah government and we have the Taliban. We should, I don't know when we'll get to it, but given that this is a, you know, a CIA podcast, we should probably talk a little bit about Al-Qaeda. You want to do it now or should we save it? I don't know if there's another point where it becomes more relevant. Yeah, because they're a little bit more, they don't seem to have like a, they don't seem to get any more relevant from this point on. It seems like the height of their relevance is during the Soviet-Afghan war, which to be fair is, as far as that particular conflict goes, not a whole lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, other than, so within this context, yeah, this is the most involved they ever are. Uh, I guess maybe we could hold it off for when we talk about Bosnia. What do we talk is. about? When do we talk about, uh, just in the future? Uh, no, let's, no, we should do it now. Um, just to, just to clarify, like, uh, I don't know if this is the contention that you hold, but based on the research that I had done, it seems like there is not that much... Um, I mean, there is, insofar as they are involved in the conflict, but there is not that much like cross-interference between Al-Qaeda and the Mujahideen. It seems as if, because, again, the Al-Qaeda are part of what is known as the Afghan Arab Mujahideen, so they are, they are essentially like foreign mercenaries. They are an entirely foreign group, mostly composed of Arabic people. There are some... Iranians, there are some people who are a little bit more Eastern, some Pashtun, but like mostly it's the core of Al-Qaeda by this point, and even today. It's still mostly Arabic. Bin Laden himself is a Saudi Arabian. He was a millionaire, right? Uh, yes. He was a he like construction conglomerate. Yeah. Or oil ma and sorry, construction. construction magnet. My bad. And oil. And oil. Oil magnet. Because at this point, the Bin Laden family is buying um, George W. Bush's oil company that mm -hmm. is failing. Just a statement. Like, there's no... Like, George W. Bush's oil company is bought by the Bin Laden family at the same time as mm -hmm. uh, Al-Qaeda is forming. It's just a, just a coincidence. So Al-Qaeda, again, enters the conflict, has some... It, it appears to us, based on the reading that we've done, that they do not really have any actual influence on the outcome of the war that is at all significant. They seem and to have just seemingly non-existent to the Afghani populace, other than yeah, like, the, as another bad person in town. Like they are uh, the again. So, so a lot of again the best connections that I could find are a lot of what the U.S. does as far as supporting the Mujahideen, which really ultimately means supporting uh, Gulbuddin and Hegnitar, which is their 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 boy. Uh, that I think that level of support doesn't really actually change throughout the war, even as these other alliances are shifting. The U.S. and Pakistan, at least until the rise of the Taliban for the, the latter, seems to mostly be backing this boy, Hekmatyar. Well, also, they're the ones who kind of bring Hekmatyar to the Taliban because they're allied for a while and then not and then again, whatever. This, again, whatever. this is more... The, the, the different alliance shifts are a little bit more... They are more. This, this is as convoluted as any episode of Game of Thrones. Probably worse. Yeah, because at least the writers of Game of Thrones would be like, we should stop because people will get confused. 
But in any case, uh, because the United States is to some degree operating through the ISI, which is the intelligence agency in Pakistan, that is the closest that we get to any kind of like direct contact with bin Laden. Bin Laden seems to be much more connected by this time up until 9-11 with Saudi intelligence than American intelligence. Significant, yeah, is, significantly so. He is at this point a personal advisor to Prince Turkey, who is the head of Saudi intelligence at the time. Um, so the CIA at this point makes, still to this day, makes the claim that in the 1980s and early 90s, we never once made contact with Osama bin Laden. Well, who's we? we also, uh, the U.S. government and the CIA. Okay. Because Americans did make contact with him. Yeah, the Bush family knew the bin Laden as well, of course. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just mean like, a, so we did, I did find that like a, a former, either former or current, I don't remember which, which seems important, um, was like somebody who was like actively training bin Laden while he was fighting in Afghanistan, but this doesn't seem to be any funding for, any funding that might have made its way into Al-Qaeda either seems to be completely peripheral, something that happened as a consequence, or it seems to be, it would have had to be like clandestine and even at this time, seemingly not in anybody's interests. Al-Qaeda does not have even a chance of shifting the war in any particular direction. And also by this point, uh, bin Laden is pretty open with his anti-American rhetoric. So the only exception to that is Itihadi Islami, mm -hmm. uh, who only really matters significantly up until like the Battle of Kabul. After that, they kind which, of fall which, away which, a little bit. Which Battle of Kabul? Uh, the first one. Well, which like, year? The Battle, of, the Battle of Kabul in 92. In 92. Okay, so we're talking about Hekmetar um, at that yes, point. Yes, but Itihad, uh, their leader is educated in Saudi Arabia. Uh, he is a true Wahhabist, uh, although he considers the term to be offensive. He considers himself to be like just another uh, follower of Salami Salaf, uh, which is what Salafists call themselves sometimes, or Ali Hadith. Um, but he is largely led by the writings of people like Qutbi and Ben Wahhab and Albana. Um, okay. Should we talk a little bit about what happened in 92 with the actual, like, there was a, there was a meeting to try and form a coalition government. Well, we should probably get, so where are we in the narrative right now? 88, 89? All over the place. I'm trying to keep us in the first phase, but right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I'm, this happens, this happens during the first phase. Yes. The Peshwar Accords? I think so. Uh, so the Peshwar Accords are officially signed in 91. So I guess kind of. No, that, well, that, that would be firmly first phase, yes. Yeah. Um, I'm just sitting here checking off the little stuff off my checklist. Sorry, I have the whiteboard. It's all right. We're good to go. Um, so the Peshwar Accords are uh, like a combination of political structure and power sharing agreement, right? And so we have most of the factions that are involved in the fighting in Afghanistan involved with the Peshawar Accords, with a couple notable exceptions. Oh, April 24th, 92. Yes. So they are signed in 92. They are, it is signed by, yeah, so it's said it's signed by every, by pretty much every faction that is fighting in Afghanistan by this time, all of the Mujahideen factions, I should say, with the notable exception of Hezbi Islami Gabudin. Um, so this, to some degree, is also, uh, you made the point why the United States, and to some degree also Pakistan, really favored Gulbuddin. Gulbuddin was somebody who was completely uncompromising, as is evidenced by his failure to participate in these accords, which might lead to certain compromises that would not be acceptable to an ideologue like him. And yeah. very conveniently, the failure, like this, these, the failure to except these would also make him a very nice ally for the United States. Yeah. Who also don't want to see like, any da dangerous, like, uh, compromises made. Yeah. In spite of his, like, 
unflinching support for almost identical beliefs to Saudi Arabia, <laughs> they are convinced that he should not take power. Uh, in contradiction to both Pakistan and the U.S., right? Because the unflinching thing makes him a bad Arabia wants another ally in Afghanistan that is functional and capable of being a country, right? So in a way, kind of similar to the Soviet Union, where, like, we can't have this country destroyed completely, because if we do, there goes our fucking ally. Um, whereas Pakistan is perfectly content with having a destroyed Afghanistan. And by this point, the U.S. has already decided that they're not going to get the ball, so they're going to take it and go home. And in this case, taking the ball and going home means allowing the slaughter of 500,000 civilians. Um, so the Peshmer Accords, uh, they guarantee each country uh, or each faction uh, a certain amount of power. Uh, Hekmatyar hates this because he thinks that, as mentioned, democracy in contradiction to Islam, voting, anti-Muslim. Uh, it is actually his big issue with Iran that they allow votes. Like he hates oh. that about them. He's very angry about that fact. Uh, we, hate, actually, we hate democracy. Yeah, he declares them top fear for it. <laughs> very nice. <laughs> um, so Hekmatyar makes a statement saying, in our country, coalition government is impossible because this way or another, it will be weakened. He's got the backing of history on his side there. There have been, um, at least to say that the failure of being able to properly placate all of the different factions seemed to be a problem both for Daoud Khan and for the, for the communist regime. Um, on a recorded radio com between him and Masood, who again, sees himself as a Gaullist, right? So like, again, Masood wants this broad coalition because he is reading Gaul's memoirs in the 1940s when Charles de Gaulle is building this large coalition of French anti-Nazi forces, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll take, fuck it, we'll take the Orleanists and the Bonapartists as long as you're all willing to fucking go after this one side and keep French, keep France French. Um, he's doing much the same thing in Afghanistan and ends up asking, the Kabul regime is ready to surrender. So instead of fighting, we should gather. The leaders are meeting in Peshawar. Should the troops should not enter Kabul, they will enter later on as part of the government. A reasonable thing to say. This man is ready to surrender, so we're not going to bring our armies into the city. Okay. We'll leave them outside, that way people know that this isn't, like, going to be a fucking war zone when we walk in the door. Mm -hmm. uh, Hakim does not agree with this. His response is, we will march into Kabul with our naked sword. No one can stop us. Why should we meet with the leaders? Masood responded, it seems to me that you don't want to join the leaders in Peshawar, nor stop your threat, and you are planning to get enter Kabul. In that case, we must defend the people. At this point, Osama bin Laden, who has worked with Hekmatar extensively in Peshawar, urges Hekmatar, go back with your brothers. So at this point, Osama bin Laden is the voice of reason in the room. Hold on, what was that you said about Osama bin Laden working extensively with Hekmatar? Yeah, in Peshawar. In Peshawar. Extensively on what? Uh, training and uh, military support. I and see. And financial support. So this is where the CIA uh, bin Laden connection would come in as far as the Mujahideen is concerned. Uh, and that is sourced from... Uh, how we missed the story of Osama bin Laden, the Taliban, and the hijacking of Afghanistan from the uh, Institute for Peace. Okay. So that would be the relevant details that we were trying to talk about. Perfect. Uh, Hekmachar refuses again. Uh, which, again, we come, like, I really, I really need to hammer this into everyone's head. The leader of Al-Qaeda is currently the voice of reason in negotiating and making compromises. Very nice. Gobuddin Hekmachar has managed to push himself to the right of Osama bin Laden. 
So the CIA wasn't funding, you know, directly funding and aiding and abetting bin Laden. They were directly funding, aiding and abetting someone who was super bin Laden. <laughs> who was to who was to the right of bin Laden. Yes. Yeah. Who bin, um, who bin Laden had to look at and say, hey, you're crazy. You're going too far. Notch, buddy. Maybe we should I I don't the maybe we should compromise some of the principles of our of our Salafist Islam to, you know, reach a peace that's good for the people. Quote Osama bin Laden. Hey, like, you know they are also Muslims. Quote Osama bin Laden. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, fucking Golden Hackmachar is just like, what if I uh I don't know, walk into the city with my fucking guns out, though. That they didn't and think of so, that. And so it was. And fucking... But honestly, it's such a terrible move, because he, in theory, could have presented this as... Yeah, sure. And then brought his troops in. Instead, he sat on a fucking radio call with Shah Masood. said, no, I'm coming in with my guns. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm coming in on. Well, I I mean I guess it's like it's haram to lie. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> uh, Gobind Hakmajar is now very concerned about doing the right thing. <laughs> I have my copy of the Peshwar Accords pulled up. Uh, they're really short. Like they are. Much less. Somehow, Gulbuddin Hekmachar still gets the prime minister spot. Until he starts shooting at Masood's troops. Uh, the guy who can't compromise and can't form a coalition? Yeah, let's make him prime minister. Yeah, until he starts shooting at Masood's troops before they get to Kabul. Yeah, that's like, oh, first, I just <laughs> want to make the point. That's incredibly funny because that's the worst possible job you could give Hekmachar. Debatably, any job is the worst job you could give him. No, you gave him... No, he's like... Because he's obstinate, and he's completely ideological, and he's unbending, and you are going to put him in charge of, like, the... That is the job where you have to make compromises and form coalitions. Especially in a country as fractious as Afghanistan, by this point. Well, I think at this point... That is comically bad. Hakmachar simply believes Mm -hmm. that he is going to be the best war crimes president, war, war crimes prime minister, and he will just kill everyone who doesn't agree with him, which... Cool. Like, in his defense, I see where he's coming from when he gets prime minister. It's the other six fucking people in the room who I'm like, absolutely stunned any of them agreed to this. Like, Rabani, who is an otherwise reasonable human being, and also a planner. Like, he is a rational human being. He's not a reasonable human being, but he's rational. He, like, he's has rational. plans and makes decisions that have long-term impacts. I could see him putting Hekmachar there. Simply because he knows that Hekmachar has violated, at this point, every peace treaty that the Mujahideen have signed amongst themselves within a period of under 72 hours. Mike, I missed all of that. Please, re- oh, please restate. Um, Rabani knows that Hekmachar has at this point violated every single peace treaty that the Mujahideen have signed amongst themselves within a period of 72 hours. So it could very well be that he knows that Hekmachar is going to go to shoot one of their men within three days, at most. Um, so the rules are uh, a 51 person body headed by Mojadedi will go inside Afghanistan to take over power from the present leaders of Kabul. Uh, the head of this body is also the president of the state. Professor Robani will remain as the president of the tra- transitional Islamic state of Afghanistan and head of the leadership council for four months. His work will officially begin at the time when the two months of transfer of power have elapsed. 
Uh, the above mentioned mention period will not be extended by even one day. The Prime Minister and other members of the Cabinet will be appointed from the second grade members of the Tanzimat on the decision of the heads of the Tanzimat. Uh, Prime Ministership is assigned to Hizbi Islami. The Deputy Prime Ministership and Ministry of the Interior to Ittihadi Islami. The Deputy Prime Ministership and the Ministry of Education to Hizbi Islami Khalis. The Deputy Prime Ministership and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to the National Islamic Front. And the Ministry of Defense to Jamiat Islami. Uh, Supreme Court will go to Harakat i Inkilabi in Habakat e Inkilab e Islami. It was also decided that the Leadership Council, in addition to making the division of appointments in the ministries, will determine the ministries for Hizbi Wadat, Shari e Etalah, the Council Coalition, Malavi Mansur, and other brothers. The total period of this process will be six months. As regards the transitional government, the Islamic Council will make unanimous decisions. The period of this transitional government will be two years. So these were the accords that Gulbuddin could not agree to. Yeah. And they, they only amounted to two pages and he gets to have a really good cushy job that he really does not deserve to have because he's completely incapable of it. Debatably the least capable person within Afghanistan, probably. Like I'm imagining that you could grab most random people on the street who are illiterate. Be like, hey, do you think you're willing to make an agreement with another person? Yeah, like, yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> Would you make an yeah. agreement with another person if you got to stop being a, you know, if you got to stop fighting in the mountains and hills and get to be prime minister? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you don't have to I... do guerrilla warfare anymore where someone could shoot you at any time. You get to have a cushy prime minister job. Would you accept that? I'll offer you that in exchange. Uh, you will be slightly less of a Salafist weirdo. Just slightly, even. Yeah, right, curtail it a little bit. Other leaders are also Salafists. Yeah. It's not like he's but, giving up on everything. Like, we Just should mention we vote. should mention that we have talked a little bit about the, like, moderate, uh, the moderate kind of, like, Islam of Masood and some others, but this is far and away the minority along Mujahideen leaders. Right, Most of them are Rani, decently a hard line, just not, just not like this. Right, Robani is a hardline Salafist. He just also realizes that, like, in the modern world, countries need to have votes sometimes. Yeah. And to some degree... is Robani's student at one point. You are going to see that, like, a little bit, I think, with the... Because, again, there are certain groups that are, like, to some degree, even less willing to compromise with the West than uh, Hekmitar. Certainly the Taliban thinks that that's them. And to some degree, like that's also why the United States never backs the Taliban. Or mm. uh, mm. uh, hold on, does not back the Taliban in this particular conflict to the degree that they back Hekmitar, or is that also bad? Uh, so how bad is it? Depends, depends on who you ask. Oh no. Uh, well, because yeah, the point the point of that being that the uh, the Taliban are like very much like almost like a kind of like year zero kind of return to tradition, and Hekmitar is, by comparison, slightly more modern. Yeah, just barely. Like a year 3,000, a year 300 return to tradition. Yeah, like he's, you know, <laughs> we're still, I assume we're still going to have like a strong, centralized, and decently modern state with Hekmitar as opposed to a very like tribal-oriented one under the Taliban. Right, like there are some Taliban writers who I read when I was trying to study this, mm -hmm. like straight up advocated I mean, for what eventually happens, which is leveling Kabul and Mazari Sharif. But like with the context being that having cities is bad and everyone should have to live a tribal lifestyle. And so that's why we should level them rather than just like, this is a side effect of the war. And so for whatever reason, the Taliban at this stage are also... They, they are favored by Pakistan after 94. I should, I'm not going to jump too far ahead, but that is, or I guess if there's any, if there's not anything else to say about like what happens in 92, when Hekbitar um, uh, does not agree to the Peshawar Accords. 
Well, I mean, we have to touch 92, 93. All right, 92, 93. What do we got to say? So 92, 93 is uh, the Battle of Kabul. Um, and who do we have fighting on either side? So Najibullah steps down following the defection of Junbish, right? Junbish forms. Uh, Dostum has been approached previously by Hekmatyar to try to turn him into a double agent. Here's the catch on that. When Dostum becomes independent, he contacts Masood. Presumably because he assumes he can trust Masood further than he can see him, and that like you can only trust Hekmatyar as far as you can see him as long as he doesn't have like a phone or a radio in his hand that he could potentially communicate with another person. Um so what ends up happening is um Dostum and Masood ally, which is significant for a lot of reasons, Dostum being this hardline caucus and Masood being the leadership on the ground for Rabani, uh, who is in Peshwar and very old. It would, it would actually be strange if like Rabani was leading his own army. Like if you had this eight, like 70 year old dude roaming around with an AK in the mountains, I feel like it doesn't go well. Um, So, ultimately, he helps capture Mazari Sharif, but that's down the line a little bit. Um, Junbish itself is very well equipped because it was most of the Afghan army and all of Afghan intelligence, uh, which is a huge advantage. Um, very, very quickly, things go downhill. Uh, so, May 29th, uh, Hekmatyar tries to uh, blow up the prime minister, the current prime minister, against the rules, because we are now in peace treaties, right? Yeah, I, I, blowing up the prime minister seems to be against the rules during most periods of time. <laughs> it is regicide is frowned upon, almost universally. Uh, he shoots a rocket at his plane. Uh, which nullifies the Peshwar Accords. Uh, Junbish and Jamiat ally against his Bigelbudden and are welcomed into the city um, because they make it clear to people as they are coming in that Golbudden Hekmatyar is standing on the south side of the city while they are on the north side of the city and that they are just trying to get from one side to the other so he does not get in. Uh, so Masood, up until this point, has been largely uh, not bloodless, but has largely tried to avoid fighting in civilian areas. Um, from here on out, that is largely untrue. Uh, things go downhill very quickly and very badly from here. Mm -hmm. Um so Junbish and Jamiat begin fighting with Hizbi Islami Gulbuddin in the city, which I understand, like, that is a necessity. That is an understandable necessity, right? Um, Rabani will take over the president from Mojadedi, uh, who was just attempted to be assassinated by Ekmantyar Gulbuddin. Um, and we now enter into phase two of the war largely uh, with, holy shit, Gilbudden. Uh, oh, so we are entering phase two now. Yes. Okay. In 92. Michael. Yes. This seems like an opportune time for us to take a quick little, a quick little smoke break. We hope you enjoyed it. This has been Timber Sycamore, and I'm Michael Petroselli. With Hayden DePriest, this is Have a nice day. More presents Afghanistan.
and then we do a little 